They say you should never meet your heroes, but that's probably because they've never met Dan Norris. Hey, I'm Jason Andrew, chartered accountant, business owner, and financial lawyer, and this is Stark Naked Numbers, the podcast that strips down the numbers of business, investing, and wealth creation. In this episode, I'm joined by Dan Norris, serial entrepreneur, award-winning content marketer, best-selling author, and a genuine business hero of mine, to talk about how he wrote the Creator Economy playbook, why he left Black Ops Brewing, and why he's putting his career on the line with his new business. Strap in. Dan, you know when you meet internet people in real life, it feels a bit weird or wild because I feel like I know a lot about you already. Um, and honestly, you were like the first business internet guy I ever followed. So I first came across you in, I think, 2014, 2015, around that time. And I think you just started WP Curve or were probably in the process of, of maybe maybe six or 12 months in. And honestly, I think you were the guy or the OG that started the whole building in public marketing strategy um, in my <laughs> eyes anyway. So you were like posting content like at least three times a week, very, very high quality, in-depth value calls on topics like how, the, how, how you're building your business Productized services, marketing, SEO, and uh, and also we we were and I think fortunately we were starting our accounting firm SBO, uh, which which you know I'm still part of around the same time. So we started about 2015, and we basically just copied your content marketing strategy playbook. Like I'm an accountant, I was always a technician my entire life. I'm an accountant by background, knew nothing about marketing, and then like suddenly came across you, and I didn't even know you were Australian. Like I thought you just like you know some you know these these guys in New York or San Francisco, these internet bloggers or whatever but like you were just out the gold coast i'm in brisbane and i was like holy shit this guy is like right so authentically he's sharing everything and your content was just so alluring and i just i read everything you wrote right and so i was like well damn this works because obviously you're also posting the growth of wp curve and so like well i'm just gonna copy your playbook and so well i basically literally repeat your strategy um which is how we do business um, the lessons we were learning and growing a, like an accounting firm, the tools and stuff. There was one thing I was never comfortable doing, which was posting revenue updates, which you did, I think, weekly, right? You shared your MRR, your growth in customers every week. Weren't, were you afraid of posting your stats and revenue publicly as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm always afraid to post anything publicly. It's, it's not like I'm not afraid to do it because... Um, I mean, I've actually, I've never really got that much hate from the internet, but I just see where the internet is these days. I'm really reluctant to post anything. I still do post a lot of content, but um, it's not like I'm not scared to do it. And with financials, I think you're going to get hate now if you post anything to do with financials because it's become such a common thing that people, you know, there's a lot of people who think it's kind of just bragging now when people post their numbers. I mean, I was do- I was doing it when we weren't making any money. Like, like I did it from... Uh, you know, WP Curve was making, sorry, not WP Curve, but informally my startup before that was making $5,000 a year. And that was my full-time business. That was all I was doing. And I was posting revenue numbers then. And, you know, we all, all the way to the end of Black Ops, we were doing crowdfunding and, you know, posting your revenue. And, you know, we were doing $16 million in revenue when we did the last update. And I did it all the way through. I, I don't think it's necessarily always a good thing to do. I, I, I'm not sure. It wasn't really your question, but when I when I did originally, I definitely wasn't the first person to do it. There was um, Pat Flynn, who was like an internet marketing sort of make money online type guy who did it. Yeah, I just always, I I just value transparency as a, a thing that I think is good in business and it's rare, and it's less rare these days, that's for sure. But back then it was very rare, so I just kind of backed that core idea, and I still do. 
Um, I'd, l- I'd love to be more transparent about everything that's going on business-wise with me, but I can't for legal reasons. So <laughs> that bugs me a lot because I would rather <laughs> just, I would rather business just be completely transparent. And it, it annoys me, you know, that when businesses are being transparent and revealing information, which really helps people a hell of a lot, yeah. um, you know, they get flack for that because it, the normal way is just to hide everything, which is annoying and stupid. I don't think it should be like that. And I think it, I'd rather if everything was public. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of companies that do it. Like I mean, Buffer still like that's how company Buffer. I think they still post their metrics publicly because I get yeah, that's kind of a meta for them because they're a dashboard analytics SaaS, right? So yeah, they're um, pretty committed cool. to it though. Like like they post yeah. all of their staff salaries and um, yeah, and that's where I think it gets a bit far, right? Like I don't know mm. the staff salaries things. Like uh, that's I, I like I, I get the spirit of it, but like sharing you know, how much they're paying their senior engineer. Like, you, you people just do a LinkedIn search of, like, who's the CTO of Buffer. And, <laughs> okay, yeah. cool, that guy's getting paid half a million bucks. All right, well, you know, interesting. <laughs> I don't know what you do with that information. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, but, so yeah. some things I think if they're personal, but that's a good thing. Like, if it's your business and you have, you know, equity and control over the business, then you can just decide that this is a core value of yours and you kind of attract the people who share the same core value and you get on with get on with the job. Um, but if you were to come into a company with different partners, you know, more old school thinking and other people who didn't like that idea, it would be super weird to start sharing that information, I think. Yeah, definitely. And like this, this podcast is titled Stark Naked Numbers. And like, yeah, the, the idea is that we get really stuck and we strip down and get into the, the to the details and the numbers. So really excited yeah. to have this combo. Um, and I know there's some stuff you can't share, as you mentioned, for legal reasons, but um, love to love to um, understand what you can share. So, uh, Me too. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so yeah. I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll try and make sure I only share stuff I'm legally allowed to, but, you know, I don't really know. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Sure, <laughs> we can cut stuff out. Uh, post <laughs> this if, if, we, if we say something that might get you in trouble. So, so yeah. within a short amount of time, you scaled WP Curve to, Curve to like over a thousand customers. I think you had an annual run rate of over a million bucks um, ARR, and then you sold yeah. it to GoDaddy in like a really short amount of time, like two years, I think. And I remember yeah. reading about it in a, in a TechCrunch article. And I was like, holy shit, this guy's my hero. Like, and you still are, <laughs> by the way, in, in many ways. Um, so I think it might be helpful for the audience who don't know you or like whatever. Like, what is what is what is WP Curve? Like, what was it? And yeah, tell us maybe share us the journey of that. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, it was a, a a creature of the timing, I think. It was kind of like I wanted to build a software startup. I didn't really know how to, and still don't. I've tried many times and failed miserably. Um, and all like all I really need knew what to to do was to kind of like build websites and fix the website because I taught myself how to do that. And I just desperately needed to start something because my business was, you know, my software business was making $5,000 a year and costing me probably 50000 a year. So it was just not happening. And it was just a monthly recurring service and, and doesn't seem like that much of a big deal now. It's a quite a standard sort of thing, but it was the first. It was the first sort of unlimited recurring service of its type, which was, you know, it was my kind of way of combining some of the benefits of what I view as a startup and some of the benefits of a you know more traditional business that's based around your own skills which is just just a services business which is the easiest possible business to start but probably the most difficult to really turn into something valuable and to be honest I think parts of my career I've had just a crazy amount of luck and then other parts I've had really bad luck I probably had them quite equally I would say you know, the, just the, the idea that we started this business and it kind of took off and, you know, people like you were following along 
with all the content. People were reading my blog posts. I've been writing blog posts for years before that. No one ever read anything. Um, And just everything took off. Then I wrote a book. That took off. The business took off. Um, We we had an opportunity to sell it to Envato in Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, and we did did a call. Those guys were, like, massively successful, and we, we did a call with Collis, and we were like, holy shit, this is crazy. We might actually sell this to Envato. Because we got yep. to the point where we'd sort of we both tapped out in terms of like our desire to be involved in the business anymore. To be honest, like we were we were kind of falling apart as co-founders. Um, yep. The business wasn't really growing. I was bored, as crazy as that sounds. Because now I just think about that business and just think that was fucking perfect. I should have just kept it. <laughs> yeah. So for people who don't know Doug Picker, that was like unlimited uh, W like WordPress help. Yeah, small right? small like- WordPress fixes. So yeah, unlimited yep. monthly jobs, and which was enough of a point of difference to get us some attention because when yeah. I launched it, everyone kind of told me it was a crazy idea. I know everyone says that when they get interviewed on podcasts, but like they literally did. I was in, in this forum. They, you know, some of the messages that were sent to me were like quite aggressive in terms of like, this is a real stupid idea. You're just flailing around. You're, you're a shit entrepreneur. Like they're pretty, yeah. I, I screenshotted them and put them in the book. Um, nice. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, like it, the fact that everyone thought it would be a bad, I mean, I didn't know it was going to be a good idea either. I was desperate. I was just hoping. Um, yeah, and yeah. So the fact that everyone thought it would be a bad idea made for a really cool story, and the fact that I'd failed for so long and then just come out with this business that was so good in my eyes. I mean, even even to me, I think like it was only doing a million dollars a year. Like Black Ops, I took that business to sixteen million dollars a year, and no one ever said good job for that. <laughs> you know, but everyone, <laughs> everyone was excited about a million dollars with WPK. I, I think um, it's because I think partly that is because I think the people who are probably following you were people like me who are like getting started in business or maybe new to business. And you're like, hey, you're just a guy like me. I think you're so relatable as a person or a personality on the internet. You're like, you know, you're so authentic. You know, you're just a bloke trying to trying to build a business and you've just hit it out of the park with the success. And like, holy shit, he can do it. I can do it. And so people really resonate with that hero journey, which which you were the guy, right? Yeah, no, th- th- it was. I just, it, I, I didn't never even realize this was the story I was telling. I only figured it out one day when I used to post my revenue numbers and I used to do them in a line chart. And yeah. I've, I've told this story before when I, I used to present at conferences, but I'd show the line chart. And one day I hired a guy to do content and he pointed out to me that my line chart looked exactly like Cinderella's, um, the Cinderella story line chart from that Kurt guy who does the story graph or whatever, whatever that guy's yeah. name is. Story brand, I think. Or is it story brand? Oh, well, there's an original guy who like plotted the graphs of these stories called Kurt Von. I'm going to butcher his name. I can't remember what his name is. He's quite famous for this. Anyway, so it was only then when I realized, oh, actually that's no wonder people are into this because this is like just a tried and tested story that people yeah. couldn't, you know, try to manufacture. It's so perfect. Um, and, but for me, it was not, it was never about that. It was just, it's like sharing content for me has always been as much for me as it is for other people. Cause it's like a, it's like an outlet for me and I get joy from publishing something that will help other people and the community that I formed around that. Like back then the blog, my blog was quite active. I have lots of comments. All the posts have been deleted since, since the company sold. But like back then blogging was a pretty big thing. Yeah, and, it was huge. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of was really good community around putting out content. Like I remember one one time I went on Pat Flynn's podcast and I was traveling and I I made an offer to his audience to review to review their websites, and I just said just post in the comment on on his blog, and I and I 
flew to like the next place and I looked at the blog and there was like 500 comments on his oh, blog. Shit. It's probably still there. You can probably still see it. Um, and I just spent hours and hours and hours just reviewing all these people's websites. Oh, you did the whole lot? Yeah, yeah. It was cool. I mean, I, I, wow. I really enjoyed that. Like that was like the first the first indication back from the internet world that I was actually useful for anything. Yes. Um, and and I even struggle to get that now. Like I put content out now. I get replies to my emails. I get, I, got, I would say quite a few, but I haven't really focused on that side of things too much. But, you know, I put, put a post in my blog and I'll be lucky to get three or four comments. Um, mm. I actually, for, for the last three or four years, I haven't even had com- comments on the blog. But back then it was, it was kind of like, that's what the community was. If you had an online business, I didn't really go out into the world for networking. It was all online. Yeah. So that part of it was like a really enjoyable thing. Plus, it was helping other people, which I, well, I hope it was. I mean, it sounds like it helped you. So that's really cool. It helped yeah. me massively. Oh, no, you, you were basically inspired. Like, you know, I, I've, I've got a small community that I'm, I'm kind of growing and building. I write a lot now, but like you were definitely one, well, probably the, the, the guy that inspired this whole kind of form of marketing for me. So, um, yeah, huge well, that's inspiration. Really cool. So, yeah, it's awesome. Um, so, like services businesses, like productized services, how much of a headache was it scaling WP Curve? <laughs> um, well, it depends what you what you call scaling. You know, like like we we grew it from zero customers to a thousand customers, all very organically. We didn't really do any advertising at all. It was all based around the story and the marketing and the content, word of mouth. We 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 did have a, a lot sort of a referral program of sorts, where so some of the kind of online guys would refer customers to us. Building the team of developers, you know, my co-founder did most of that. I, I did probably the first 10 developers, just found them on all over the place, had a process for it, I wrote about it. After the first sort of 10 or so, my co-founder looked after most of it and we had a team manager over in America who looked after it. To be honest, I didn't do much. I didn't, there wasn't much for me to do. I wrote a lot of content. That side of things was managed mainly by him. That said, when we got to about a million dollars a year, the business didn't grow anymore. And that was scary because you, you kind of start thinking, well, if you can't get any more new people in and, you know, people are churning, people are always churning from subscription businesses, even the best ones have huge amounts of churn. And if you can't get more people in, like we, we really had no way of getting customers other than this sort of, you know, create a lot of content, hope for the best, create good value, which, which I'm totally fine with. I did exactly the same thing at Black Ops, you know, we, like, like we didn't, we didn't do paid marketing. Um, but when the business stops growing, you start getting a bit scared because you think, well, if you know, if you're losing 10% a month, it's only going to be a year before you've got no business at all. Yeah. Yeah. So so we kind of stagnated. We didn't really decline too much, but we kind of people would like this, this is the early days of subscription. These days it's very normal for people to churn and then resubscribe to things. So like Netflix, yeah. Netflix has this problem now, they've got a huge churn rate. If no one resubscribed to Netflix, they'd be out of business within a year or two. I think they have something like ten percent a month or something crazy. Yeah. Um, but the way it works is like a subscription now is sort of it's not really seen as a lifelong commitment like it was back then. Back then it was kind of like you sign the customer up and you add it to your MRR and that's like that's like your thing. But really, customers could leave whenever they wanted. There was nothing locking them in. Just like with Netflix now, lots of people leave and you need a lot of other people to come and replace them. Otherwise, the business is going to go backwards. And I think I think if we had have stayed in the business, if you weigh up the the lack of growth, the co-founder disagreements, you know, the the founders just not really being happy doing the work, I think it probably wouldn't have worked out. You know, I think it would have just declined to a point of you know service would have dropped off, 
our hearts weren't in it anymore. Um, I don't think it would have worked out too well. So the fact that the, the whole sale thing happened was just a, to me, just a massive, you know, so much luck. You, you, you couldn't even make this shit up. Like there was the sale to Envato, which just fell through that uh, unexplicably. I think they just maybe just wanted to like suss us out to work out how the business worked and get some information from us to work out if they want to get into that field. I don't really know, but they just pulled out without explanation. And we had, we had an email for, for like a few weeks earlier from someone at GoDaddy and we're like, oh, what, why don't we follow that up? So I told Alex that he was in San Francisco. I was like, why, why don't you just go meet with this guy and see what's going on? Went and met with him and he's like, yeah, they're actually interested. I mean, basically the situation was he was an M&A guy and his job was to find companies to buy. And I don't really know how much strategic value WP Curve had to go, Daddy. I mean, I don't think it exists anymore. For all I heard, the service dropped off and, you know, customers weren't happy. I don't really know why they bought it, to be honest, in hindsight. but but they did <laughs> and <laughs> and it was a great outcome for us and they did and you won so yeah, yeah wonderful so um i i looked on GoDaddy's financials i can't i actually search all their reports like the same year i think 2021 or oh, when did you sell it uh it was well the day we had our first meeting was the day we black ops opened so it would have been july 2016 and then we sold at the end of the year so end of 2016 yeah, so I I went I looked at the dates of the annual reports from the TechCrunch announcement, and I I, I did a control F like I went through the annual reports. I couldn't find one mention of WP Curb in, in their annuals because I was trying to find out how much you sold the blade thing for. So can you can you tell me? Yeah, well we had we had an NDA we weren't allowed to say, but I think it's so long ago I don't think anyone would care. But we sold we sold it for basically two million US dollars, which was about three million Aussie dollars. That's epic. So that yeah. was a what, like a three x on on revenue, on the MR- revenue. ARR? Yeah, and the way yeah, the way wonderful. we sold it was was I can't remember the exact details, but it was sort of in our favour from a tax point of view, to the point where we didn't have to pay much tax on the sale. Yeah, um, I think awesome. asset sale from memory. I don't know. This is quite a while ago, but yeah, well, I mean, we we basically got what what was almost a, a SaaS multiple, not yeah. quite. I mean, SaaS multiples got out of control, you know, a few years ago, but back then. It, they sort of got talked about as like a three, four, five, six x sort of thing for yeah. SaaS companies, but yeah. a traditional business, you'd you'd be lucky to get three times. I mean, really, like we paid ourselves all of the profit. It was probably if we didn't pay ourselves at all, it was probably say four hundred grand in profit. Yeah, which is sort of how these things happen. Like they kind of like the owner doesn't take a drawing, and they just triple. I mean, you know more about this than I do, but that's that's basically my understanding of what a traditional business would sell for. So yeah, we- yeah, you basically three to three or four times your profit, basically you normalize that. So you know, in, in today's market, if you so if you had WP curve today, you'd be probably looking at a three four times of profit, not revenue. Right. So I mean, it, it, and that turns it in. You know, if it was a million dollars and and we owned it fifty fifty more or less, and you got a little yeah. bit of tax to pay on that. I had a divorce to settle as well, which was a few hundred grand. <laughs> So yeah. I mean, there wouldn't have been much left for us as yeah. it was. It was it was a pretty amazing exit. I'd never seen that much money in my life. I couldn't fucking believe it. That's wonderful. And like at mm. the same time, like you you launched a ton, bunch of books as well, like Content Machine, Seven Day Startup, like Create or Hate. And you're basically doing what now is trending. Like you're the creator economy playbook way before it was cool. Like, and this is why I, again, I've like I like you know you, you look at everything back in hindsight. 
Like you were the guy doing the personal brands media playbook and you're launching products by leveraging your audience, right? And that's what I that's what I look at now. I don't know if I was intentional at the time, but like this this model is so hot right now. Yeah. And in my eyes, you're the fucking OG of it. Right? Like so you're like the you're the business Mr. Beast version of that, right? So like honestly, honestly, and like you you like you I I don't know if you probably look back and reflect on that at all but like you're doing you did that like eight years ago which was way ahead of its time um and yeah it was awesome and so like after crushing it on the internet you're like started black ops and the brewery and i was like what the fuck like <laughs> you've gone from running like capital light internet recurring revenue internet businesses to like starting a capital intensive what i think low margin craft brewery and yeah. I'm like, I mean, it's every guy's dream to own a pub, right? Once they've like made it in inverted commas, like, you know, a cafe or a pub to like invite your mates over, yeah, have beers on me or whatever. But yeah, but this is like next level. <laughs> so yeah. like, why, what got you into Black Ops? Like, I'm really interested in that story. Well, we were, we were massively into craft beer and it was starting to explode in Australia. And I didn't know my, my mate at the time, Eddie, was just sort of a craft beer customer and a fan, I suppose, but his missus worked at a brewery. So we kind of had some access to breweries and sort of understood how they worked. And we met Govs, who was a brewer at one of these breweries. And so we sort of had the three of us that were, that were ready to have a crack at something. And we made a homebrew, which at this point, it was just a bit of fun. Um, but I, I kind of thought like you, the online marketing type mentality created the brand building, the transparency, all of that kind of stuff to an o- offline business I thought would potentially work quite well because it's not something that really happened. And the beer industry was very secretive back then. It was not it was not like it is now. Like we we really ushered in a big change in that industry. I mean, we weren't the only people, but I think I think what we did was so different back then. It's really become the norm now. Yeah. You know, we pioneered content. I, I wrote a book for the brewery. We did a podcast. We, we were the first crowdfunded brewery, the first equity crowdfunded uh, record-breaking equity crowdfunding campaign um, and just that old, whole idea of building a community around your brand was something that I thought would work well in beer and it, to be honest for a time there it worked way better than I ever thought it would it would like we, we built an amazing built an amazing thing there because Brew, Brewdog in the UK was was built off that same model right in a way yeah yeah and I was a fan like I, you know I still follow what they do that you know we, we'd watch their TV show I'd They'd done the equity crowdfunding thing and I'd learned about valuations and whatnot from some of their early crowdfunding yep. campaigns. They were like the yeah, they were they were way ahead of us. But in Australia, it it, it you know, that kind of thing didn't exist. Yeah, equity crowdfunding wasn't a thing. Like equity crowdfunding wasn't a thing. Crowdfunding didn't really suit breweries. We tracked the whole thing, you know, and as soon as equity crowdfunding came out, it was something and I was doing it to be honest, raising the money for Bat Black Ops almost in a similar way to equity crowdfunding where, you know, I'd sort of, it was, you know, family and friends rounds, but it was very similar in terms of, you know, writing these offer documents, telling the story, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, to to answer your question, I never intended to even work for Black Ops. Like, like when we started, I was running WP Curve. I never thought we would sell it. I have my books and my, my community. I was doing very well. Um, and we, I started just thinking that it would be a bit of fun. But then when it took off, well, when it took off, I no longer had a job with WP Curve and the business needed me because this thing was just going nuts. So I ended up working for the business, then running it for six or seven years. But it was never planned or intentional. I was, I was 
trying to work out what to do. I was never thinking I would actually work in the brewery until it really turned into something way bigger than I thought it would it would be. Yeah. How hard is it or easy is it to, to, to start and run a, a craft brewery? Because I've there are so many freaking microbreweries that have popped up in like the last five years and yeah. I, I don't get it. Like it's very crowded now. <laughs> <laughs> why why would you start a craft brewery like I, I just look at the economics of them and i'm like it's highly capital intensive big bit of land big bit of real estate you're selling stuff which you know i i love beer but like you know comparing one craft you know ipa against another like i don't i'm not i'm not, I don't, you know i don't notice the subtle differences and like yeah i'm sure i i, I you know a, a large community of people do and appreciate that but i think for the general population probably don't give a shit um that's my take on it but I'd be here, curious to hear it from your view as to like why why craft brewery why did that blow up uh, well uh, like grow in popularity? Yeah, well, I mean, to answer your first question, I wouldn't start one today. I think now would probably be the worst time to ever start a craft brewery for, for so many different reasons. But back then, we had this environment of the whole thing was booming. We'd seen it booming over in America. I'd been to America and I'd seen where it had gotten to, and you could just tell yeah. in Australia was so far behind that it was coming here. There was examples yeah. of brands here that were doing really well, like Stone and Wood and Burley Brewing. Um, brands had started years before who'd built really good businesses. Other examples of brands who'd actually sold to the two big providers. So there was an opportunity to get in early to create a, a really good brand and also an opportunity to exit. Like this, this in the years since, there's been some very big exits in that time and mm. some people have done really, really well. Unfortunately, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I didn't. I, I didn't get the type of exit I wished at all. Quite the opposite. But um, there was certainly an opportunity for it. There was, you know, we were we were pretty close. We were probably, you know, we we're probably one other brewery starting or like six month period away from being kind of the brewery that would have been the target for a big, you know, multi multi million dollar exit. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, like I said, some things I've had a lot of luck in, and some things I did, and that and that. In that particular one, the timing just wasn't quite right and kind of just all went to shit at the end there. But back then, I think it was the opportunity was certainly there for the right combination. Um, yeah. It was a big opportunity in that industry. I'd say it's, I'd say it's not there at the moment, maybe in the future, but it, it, it's not there at the moment. Yeah. So you say not the, the moment. Like the, I know a lot of breweries are struggling. There's have been solvencies, you know, people going to VA. Like what, what, what the, what's driving that, that shift now? Like why, why are they struggling? Well, I have my own views on it. It, it, it. I think my opinions on it are different to what gets told in the media. The media will tell you that it's inflation and excise and all of this stuff. But the truth is those costs are very known to breweries. Like breweries know how much excise is. It's, it's not, excise is not a cost. It's a, you know, you're collecting excise yeah. On behalf of like the government. GST, right? It's not, it's not yeah, your yeah. money. Yeah, it, exactly. It's not your money. But like if you run a brewery in a way, and I've seen this happen, where people treat that as if it's a loan, like a free interest-free loan. Like I've seen these conversations yeah. happen where accounting people will be like, well, this is the best kind of debt you can have because yeah. it's an interest-free loan and you can get a payment plan to pay it back. And, you know, w- once I started hearing conversations like that, I was like, this industry is fucked because <laughs> because there's not enough profit. Like you said, it's a low margin yeah. business. You, you, you can just do basic yeah. napkin maths to know that if you get into a position where you have to pay back 100K a month, then, you know, if you're doing $12 million a year, that's 10%. That's all of, all of your best case scenario profit. And, yeah. you know, th- no one's making 10% in that industry anymore. Like that was like best case right. scenario. So 
Really? Okay. Pre-scheme margins. Sorry, that that's assuming it's a kind of a wholesale business. There's there's venues that do. There's there's venues, and Brewdog have done really well with their model of just being. And Gage Roads have done the same thing. Good drinks on the ASX um, of being like using the venues to offset the wholesale business because the wholesale business sucks, and the venue business can be good if it's done really well. But if you just got a wholesale business and you've got that much debt, you're never going to get out of that debt, and that's that's why. A lot of these companies are now going into voluntary administration, and I think there'll be a lot more this year. I think there'll be some big name liquidations, and I, I think I think it's um, financial mismanagement, but also I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that Bolter and Stone and Wood sold, and yeah. when Bolter and Stone and Wood sold, it, it's just impossible to compete. You know, it's impossible to compete with this gigantic multinational corporation that owns all of the taps in every venue. And now has the best marketing team in the business with an unlimited budget, who and and the guys are incentivized to build their business for a big you know for a big additional exit other, on top of the existing massive exit. Yeah. I just think that I just think these small brands are not going to compete with that anymore. And yeah, that's a very different landscape to what it was like when we got into the space. Yeah, I bet. And and like honestly, I I drink XP I Bolter XPA and I think it's delicious. Like I and certain wood, yeah, you see it everywhere. Like I, you know, I enjoy those beers and like for me to choose, you know, a slipstream which is like down in my neighboring suburb, like uh, I wouldn't go out of my way to, to to drink there just because that's like well to me, I, I only I don't drink a lot now, but you know, if I'm gonna drink I'll just take what's on tap and whatever I'll just, just cop on the chin. Yeah. And and it's hard to and it's hard to not be influenced by all the all the marketing as well. Like you see down the road here at the surf club, there's this bolter shit everywhere. There's a billboard on the corner. There's the big tank thing. All the staff have bolter shirts. There's six taps on a tap bank that that CUB have paid for that no one else can get on. Um, There's drink specials. There's like things hanging off the wall. Like you just can't avoid it. There's there's no other options there. Bolter shit everywhere. Like you said, the beer is very good. It's not like it's a bad beer. It's really good. I drink it too. Um, So good luck competing with that. And and I guess I guess my you know, I guess that's a little bit cynical, and I hope, I hope I'm wrong for the sake of so many good people in that industry who are have, having a crack. But I do think, I don't think I am wrong. I think I think companies that are sort of that wholesale heavy, competing directly with the likes of Stone and Wooden Bolter are going to be in all sorts of trouble. Companies that are running the smaller brew pub model, like you mentioned, Slipstream, um, the guys at Hiker at Salisbury, they're doing a really good job. My understanding is, you know, they're They've got a big venue, small overheads. They've got some excise rebate from the government, which favours companies of that size, and they're doing quite well. And I think, and I think, and they built up a good community around people who love the brand, just like we did at Black Ops. Those kind of breweries, I think, will will still do well because fundamentally they're like a community, they're a community organisation of sorts, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But the bigger ones who are, who are trying to kind of build to exit, I think, uh, are screwed. So what? So what has what I do see? What the beer that I do see everywhere, which actually tastes like shit, and I don't think deserves to be in the market, is uh, better beer by the Inspired Employee guys. Like that, <laughs> like that. That is your t- typical like influencer led product. You know, you know. Let's let's build products, spin off products off off influencers of the big audience, right? So they've got their deodorant or perfume thing, which is obviously a piss take. I think it's stocked in Canada's warehouse. I think with the beer, and I love the idea, but like, how sustainable do you think these kind of influencer-led products 
uh, like we're seeing it in the stage with like you know Mr Beast and Feastables, and we're seeing um, you know Logan Jake Paul with like you know Prime energy drinks, which which you know Prime tastes like shit. I don't know if you've drank. Yeah, I drink it. it. I like it. Tastes- it. I'm a fan. You I'm, really I'm like it? Really? really? Yeah. I'm really bullish on this whole idea. To be honest, I think this is one area yeah. where I was very wrong. Like like you said, yeah. you know, I was kind of the OG of this personality driven content thing. But the truth is, truth is, I missed that whole thing. I I, I put all that aside when I started the brewery and I had the belief yeah. that brands built by like serious entrepreneurs were where all the value was and this personal branding thing was not valuable and I shut down all of yeah. my personal brands and yeah. you know I regret doing so because I probably could have made something quite good off my personal brand I mean I was making more just from my books and my membership back then than I did any time at Black Ops um or or now yeah and that's what that's what shocked me because I I it was like man you have you have it like when I when you exited and you're like dude you got your membership program you got your books you got your digital product all of it you know re- recurring revenue capital lie and then you start mm. the black ops thing and like dude you, you must have like been so minted that like oh, yeah. you know, this, <laughs> no, I don't no, need to no, care no, about no, the money no. anymore I'm just no, going to no. do this like brewery thing for fun and I'm like oh dude um so yeah it's interesting that you you, you and I don't know whether that information or that foresight was there at the time because but it sounds like you were just dragged into the Black Ops because it was just growing so quickly that you're like, oh, no, well, no, I, it was a deliberate this, choice. I guess this is the thing. It was right? a deliberate choice. It, yeah. I, I shut down all of my personal brand stuff um, mainly because I didn't want to get into business with other people and them think – there's another thing I was wrong about, people running multiple companies. I always thought it was a very, very bad idea. Um, yeah. I thought you have to focus on one thing and I, I thought if I ran Black Ops and I, I was there as the CEO – I, it wouldn't make sense for me to have a personal brand, and um, yeah. I, I, would, I felt my co-founders would think it was not the right thing to do. Um, in hindsight, I was very wrong about that. Like, look, look at the way—I mean, Brewdog now, their CEO James Watt has more. He's got a million Instagram followers. He's got more followers on Instagram than Brewdog has on Instagram. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you look at Elon. You know, he's the, the guy's running fifty businesses, and no one seems to care. So you know, no. I was I was definitely wrong about that, and and I've I've changed my mind a little bit about those things. Um, yeah. But also, you got to do what you enjoy, and the brewery stuff was really fun. And to, to be honest, running an online membership, like helping other people, doing coaching calls—that's not my thing. I hate it. I don't I don't ever yeah. want to do that. Um, I yeah. like doing podcast interviews, but you don't get paid for that. And I like writing, and and I got paid to some extent. You know, when I sold translation rights for the books, but it really was only the first book and a little bit of the second book that sold a lot. I think I've written seven now and, and most of them haven't sold much at all. It's only really the first couple. So there wasn't, re- I don't think there was a real good future in writing that, especially considering that I was writing, all I know how to write about is what I'm going through in my business. So if I don't have a business, yeah. I will not have anything to write about. Sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I got a lot of, I got a lot of that stuff wrong, but, but also a lot of it was just what's, you got to be doing something that's fun and you you enjoy, and something that something that you feel like you're doing well at. You know yes. what I mean? And yeah. for a lot of the yeah. time at Black Ops, it just felt like what I was doing was working really well, and that was a nice feeling. But first, a quick message from our sponsor: Are you tired of traditional accounting firms that only focus on tax and compliance, looking for a financial partner that can go beyond the numbers and reveal the story those numbers are telling? SBO Financial aren't your typical business accountants. We're your dedicated financial management team, empowering you to take control of your finances and gain clarity and confidence in your business. Sure, it will keep your books in order and file your taxes, but unlike traditional firms, we'll also go beyond financial hygiene to give you the forward-looking insights and strategies you need to grow your cash and profitability. 
Picture this, a team of child accountants, CPAs, bookkeepers, payroll specialists, and financial analysts all working together to help you grow your business. With SBO, you gain access to a collective team of experts and specialists, providing you with proactive advice and analysis. So don't settle for reactive advice. Stop looking backwards and start looking forwards with SBO Financial, your partner in financial management and growth. Visit our website or contact us today for a free financial health check at sbo.financial. Um, so I don't know how much you can share about why you're no longer a black ops, but um, like you, you've, you've, you know, you're now doing coffee. <laughs> so um, you know, I, I work with a ton of entrepreneurs, um, you know, throughout businesses and whatever. And most most people are biased towards starting new businesses. So you did that right. with you know that video seven day startup. That was literally like, hey, how to start up a business in within seven days. Like, so most people are biased towards starting from scratch. But this time. You didn't do that. Um, you bought a business instead of starting one, and that's now East Coast Roast, which is a coffee roaster on, on the on the Gold Coast. Like, so, yeah. what was your thought process behind buying a business versus starting one again? Because you've you've done this before. Like, you you know, you you start business before. You could have just started something else, but you bought one. What, what was that? What drove that decision? Well, a lot. I mean, I'd left Black Ops. I, I, you know, I basically didn't have a job anymore. Essentially, um, didn't have an income. I had a house with a big mortgage because I wasn't planning on leaving really. And yeah. I just finished building this house, which was the house I bought after selling WP Curve. I used all of that money to buy this house. So it was like my dream house. And I'd finally just Is built the house it. here and now. No, 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 no. I, I'd lost I lost the house. It's it's a long, long story, oh. but um <laughs> shit. Yeah, I basically I just finished building the house when when it all went to shit. So um yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I can't. It's complicated. My reasons for leaving were complicated, but essentially, when you have a business and you're the director of the business, and you don't, you don't feel that you can really influence it in a direction that you think is the right direction. Your options are pretty limited. You know, like you, you, I could, there was nothing forcing me out of the place. Like you know, like I had enough equity to basically stay there and be a director of this company as long as I wanted to be because I had enough equity to, that could entitle me to that. But it wasn't going in the direction that I felt was the right direction. And I was, ner- I was nervous about that. So I really, really didn't have much of a choice. I mean, I, I, I kind of thought, well, like, if I'm not comfortable being a director, if it's going in this direction, then I can't be there. I need to kind of basically just completely walk away, which – I did, but I I didn't really didn't really think about how hard that would be. To be honest, it, it, it was a lot lot harder than I thought, and I kind of found myself in a position where, like, I didn't have an income. I had this big mortgage, couldn't afford to pay it off, so I had to sell the house, which was pretty devastating because it was like my dream house. And then it was sort of like, well, do I buy another house or do I? Like, there was about a year where I just didn't do anything. Like, I didn't yeah. I didn't even know. This is like way more rock bottom than it was before. I had no idea what I was going to do. This is only like a year ago. I had no idea what I was going to do. Was I going to start a business or buy one or get a job? I had, I had no idea. And um, my options were very, very limited. I, was, I did try to start a few things from scratch, but starting something from scratch is really hard, especially when you need an income. It's very, very, very hard. And so I was either – and and I was very close to buying another house with kind of like all of the money, in which case I wouldn't have a job and I would have a house. Which uh, I, I, maybe was a good, maybe would have been a good idea. I don't really know, but anyway, the, the way I ended up going was buying another business because 
it gave me something to do essentially. And it sort of, I, I sort of eventually got to the point where I was like, well, at the very least, I can take what I learned from all the years of Black Ops and all the stuff I've learned before and apply it in a different field. Yeah. And to do that, I really had to buy something. It, it would be, I know nothing about coffee. Coffee made sense because it's just another thing I love. Yeah. But to start from scratch, I would have had no chance at all. Yeah. So it was, it was buy something that existed and this business came up and it just happened to, I happened to get it, you know, I happened to miss out on the house and get the business and that's just the direction it went in. So I found myself owning a business that's a lot smaller than Black Ops was, but I own 100% of it. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. A lot of challenges though, because, you know, you're inheriting an existing team, an existing business that's been there for about 20 years, which comes with a lot of baggage and challenges and a lot of learning new things. The main reason I would say is that it would have been impossible to start from scratch, but I also was sort of intrigued. It was something I hadn't really done before. I'd sort of done everything else. I hadn't really bought an existing business and got to work on turning it into something different. And yeah. I thought, well, that would also be a good story that people would want to follow along with. I could use yeah. a lot of my content marketing stuff, although I haven't really yet, but I, I will I will get there and, you know, have one last crack, I suppose, at building <laughs> building something, you know, in an industry that I, that I think still has some legs to it. I think the coffee, I feel a lot more confident about the coffee industry than I do about the beer industry for lots of different yeah. reasons. And um, I'm hoping that I can bring, you know, what I brought to the other things into this. But we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, what, what are those reasons? So, to me, coffee being like, because you so, what does East Coast Roast do? So, you're you're roasting coffee and then selling it to cafes. Is that yeah. is that a business model? Basically? Yeah. So, so I mean, there's a lot very similar to beer. I'd, I'd say the differences are it, it's more fragmented in terms of it's not just dominated by two big players that own all the tap. There's lots of companies like ours that essentially own, if you want. Their, their own taps you know like like we our company has 50 different coffee machines out there in cafes around the gold coast and we own those machines and the people who use those machines use our coffee so it's almost like gotcha. a distributed tap contract system where uh, it doesn't just favor the two major players it favors anyone who has you know a fleet of coffee machines which which i've acquired as part of the business um so for that reason it's it, it, it's a lot more consistent than beer um it's it's profitable, you know what I mean? Like, like, so much of beer is not profitable. Like, so much beer gets sold for less money than it ultimately costs to make it. I don't think a lot of these breweries really have really? a handle on how much it costs to make beer. Wow! Like, with factoring, like, what are they missing? Like the labor component, the capex, all that sort of stuff, or what are um, they missing in this this equation? Well, there's d- depending on the size of the business, there's there's no real good systems for understanding all the numbers and the thing that makes it difficult is again the competition like it like the price of a keg is the price of a keg and when, when yeah. we had black ups you know kegs were about 250 260 270 bucks and you could sell beer for a lot more than that but you wouldn't compete with bolter and stone and wood and the likes and get the volume if you did so you really you had to sell beer for that much and once you add up all the costs if you don't have a gigantic brewery then you're not making money on that it's you're just not yeah. and in yeah. coffee the price is is set at a margin that you know for the most part coffee companies do make money and they do that they do the calculations on how much the machines cost and the depreciation and everything else and a good cafe will make money because there's enough profit there yeah there's an exit opportunity in coffee you know there's there's big brands that have bought coffee brands and i think we'll probably continue to 
Um, in beer, I, I don't see an exit opportunity, you know, anymore because I think the, the the big companies finally figured out how to get the best ones and keep them good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that may change. It probably will change eventually, but at the moment, I don't see any exit opportunities in beer. And I think there's a branding opportunities too. Like there's a really big focus in beer on, you know, local, fresh, independent. It's a huge thing in beer. It's not a thing at all in coffee. And yeah. I think I can bring that to, you know, a Gold Coast, like a brand that looks and feels like the Gold Coast. We focus on being local, focus on being independently owned. I feel like the industry is kind of ripe for that. Whereas the beer industry has heard that to death. You know, it's it's not a point of difference anymore to say that, you're independent or that, you know, you're, yeah. you're local and fresh. It's say every brewery is that. Um, yes. So I just think it's a bit, it feels a bit earlier and coffee's a very sticky, very consistent business too. Yeah. Beer yeah. was very yeah, inconsistent and that made it very difficult. Like we did a, a limited release every second month, which made that month way more profitable than the month before, but you couldn't do them more often than that because the market didn't want that. Um, you yeah. had a massive spike in summer, you had months where the, the ass would just fall out of the business because people didn't drink beer. Not much yeah. you could do about that. It was real hard to manage that inconsistency. Coffee is not really like that. Very sticky, very consistent. So when you've got a consistent business, you know, I found this with WP Curve. It just makes everything so much easier. 100%. It's, if, if your business yeah. is not consistent, it's, man, it's so hard. It's really hard not to get too amped up when things are well and overinvest because you think they're always going to be good. And it's really hard not to get too bummed when things are bad because you just start thinking, man, if you have another month or two of this, there's going to be no money left. Um, yeah, yeah. So for those, yeah. those are the things I like about the coffee game. It's a really nice, friendly industry. Yeah, there's a lot about it that I like. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think I think uh, you know from a macro perspective, like I, you know, everyone drinks coffee. Like you know, there's a very small subset of population that don't drink coffee because you know they've, for whatever reason, um, watched some fitness influencer about caffeine diets or whatever. But there is a demographic trend to people not drinking, right? Like there's this whole not zero alcohol thing. Yeah, there's so many trends against beer. It's just exactly so many it's drinks. like there's, there's, there's no alcohol. You can't thing. control that. Exactly. No alk, um, you know, even seltzers as an alternative, you know, mm. you know, there's a lot of calories in beer. So like all these influencer brands, like you like you mentioned better beer, yeah. like like their business grew from nothing to twelve million liters in two years. I mean, that's just insane amounts of growth. There's been nothing like that. I don't I don't know if people realize how big that is. Like that's like previously the only brand to get to that volume, to my knowledge, was Stone and Wood, and they were by far the like pinnacle of what you, the best you could achieve in the industry. They were the number one. Yep. And it took them 10 yep. years to get there, and they were way ahead of everyone yeah, else. Wow. Um, so what's 12 mil? What's that What's that in terms of revenue, do you think, if you translate that high level, like 0 to 12 mil of liters? Like what's a liter cost? Uh, what's what's revenue in wholesale for a liter? Good, good question. I, I, I mean, they're, they're, they're Mighty Craft cheap. own a chunk of them, right? Like Mighty Craft own... They own about 25%, but Mighty Craft was just going down the gurgler. I think they're trying to sell their share of Better Beer and just liquidate everything else. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so they, I mean, they're, they're probably the only reason Better Beer aren't doing better at the moment, to be honest, because they're, they're probably, they're just stuck in this position where this company that is just not going anywhere owns a big chunk of them. But revenue, um, yeah, just trying to think. I mean, Stone and Wood were doing somewhere around $100 million revenue, I think, and, that, and they were about that size. Um, okay. A few years before they sold, right? 
they, they did a lot of keg stuff, though. I think Better Beer is mainly packed. Also, Better Beer don't have – like, they don't make their own beer. They, it's just contracted at Casella's. It's contract manufactured, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, figured, like, yeah. they don't – I mean, they – I'm guessing they have a very lean team, you know, like – yeah. They've got zero marketing costs. I mean, they, they do do a lot with what they've got. They do competitions and they do a lot of advertising stuff. But, you know, they have so much attention by those inspired unemployed guys. They have massive marketing advantage. They've got the advantage of not having to make their own product, which is huge in beer because it's really, really hard to make beer at scale. Yeah. They've got the health kind of thing on their side. They've got the marketing celebrity influencer thing on their side. Um, yeah. I think they'll be fine. Um, but, again, yeah. competing with them, Good luck. You know, there's these brands like Burley Brewing who sort of pioneered the zero carb thing. Mm. I I think those brands are going to struggle. You know, good luck competing against something like Better Beer. I'd be more excited about them than some of those original brands, but I, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I think in the end, like these consumer brands, um, you know, it's attention that wins, distribution wins, right? And you know, I think nowadays, as you said, you can partner with manufacturers or contract manufacturers or, or um you know, breweries to, to, to just like, hey, you build it, you know, make the thing and we'll like our, whack our logo and brand and mm. distribution on top of that and we'll just take the clip and, you know, I think it just makes for a wonderful model um, and it's really all, almost zero risk for the influencer or whoever owns it, who has the distribution, right? It's like Mr. Beast, it's Mr. Beast playbook. You just kind of, you know, whoever makes the feasible chocolate bars, I can guarantee he doesn't have a chocolate bar factory, um, you know, that, that he pays warehouse um, wages to and people making making the bars. Like he, he would definitely outsource that to, I don't know, some other group that, that does it and he just takes the margin in between, which um Yeah, I, d- I don't great. know. I mean, yeah. I, know, I know he's just amazing and his content is just out of this world and he's obviously oh, yeah. very good at business. And I'd say the same about the – the prime guys, I think what they've done is just crazy. It's amazing that what these guys do. I, I used to think yeah. about celebrity businesses as, and I remember when Bolter started because they were like in the beer space, the first kind of like this celebrity business. I yeah. distinctly remember thinking like, this is definitely going to fail because like celebrity businesses always fail. Because <laughs> you know that I mean? was, who's the, who was that? That was a surfer dude, right? Mick um, Fanning and a whole bunch of Mick others. Fanning. A lot of yeah, them, yeah, okay, there's a few others, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But I was completely wrong. Like, it was just a really, really well-executed brand, great product, great community building, great marketing. You know, it's just completely wrong. And there's been so many examples. It kind of used to be when, like, celebrities would, would, like, launch these things and it would just be embarrassing. But it's just the opposite now. Every celebrity, every influencer has their fingers in so many different pies and it seems to be working out extremely well for them because that's where the attention is and that's where the free marketing is. Um, Yeah. And if you can take your marketing... If you take marketing off your P and L, you got such a huge advantage. Oh, thirty percent for most businesses, right? At least, um, yeah. You so, know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how amazing. far that's gotten to. I, I never, never would have thought that would happen. Yeah, that, that's crazy. Um, so just on the East Coast roast thing, so you bought the business. How did you come across that business for sale? Like, where'd you how'd you come across the opportunity? I was looking in. Um, so I've actually bought a couple of businesses. I bought like a small hosting business because I, I oh right yeah okay. I didn't I didn't know the coffee business was going to happen because I was still in two minds. So I bought the little hosting business just thinking I'd work on that and I still got it. I started doing a bit of WordPress support and then I saw on a business broker. So I was looking at all the business broker sites. I saw this coffee business for sale and it said the suburb. It said it was a coffee roaster. There's not that many coffee roasters on the Gold Coast, so it was very easy to figure out which one it was. And so I before contacting the broker, I went in and had a look at it, you know, just like kind of as a customer just to get my head around because I, I could work out which one it was. 
it interests me because I like doing something that I like. Like I like beer because I like beer. I love coffee more than I like beer probably. So that was interesting to me. But also I just thought it was an opportunity. I thought there was a lot of things that I do that the business wasn't doing very well. A lot of things it does do very well, but it's an old school operation. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's been there for a long time. It was called Creative with an eight. It was this old school brand, quite well known, but the brand didn't say anything about what they do. It didn't have a, a look and feel to it that I liked. It was just this old weird shop, family business, but but still doing quite well. You know, so the idea was if it's doing well as is, maybe if I kind of rebrand and put a lot of the stuff that I do into it, then it could be quite a good business and, you know, maybe one day potentially be something that you could exit from. But I, you know, I probably underestimated how hard it was to come into an existing business and just take it over. There's a lot. There's, there's a lot to do, and there's a lot. Like when people sell a business, you know, they really paint a rosy picture about what it is. Of course, and, <laughs> of um, course. yeah. There's a lot that's happened since that I didn't think would happen. That's been pretty difficult, if I'm honest with you. Right. Um, so I've spent yeah. a lot of time doing things that I was not planning on doing, and nowhere near as much time doing the things I wanted to do, it, it'll happen. It'll just happen slower than I hoped. Yeah, so one of those things, like operationally, operational things or like people leaving or like whatever. The day before I put the offer in, I sat down with the son and the daughter of the owner. Basically, basically the owner said like he comes in, he's not really needed there. The son and the daughter run the business. Um, the son was roasting the coffee, doing the warehouse. The daughter was a GM of sorts, like doing everything. Um, and it, it turned out that, she was working. She was pre- first of all, she was pregnant. So I only found that out after I bought the business. So they told me that afterwards. I'm sure. I'm sure they knew before, but they didn't mention that. So I, I figured out very quickly that I was going to lose the GM. You know, in a matter of months. I then worked out that she was working crazy hours, and you know, doing three people's jobs. You know, legitimately three people's jobs. And I asked them both. You know, the day before I put the offer, and are you guys going to hang around? They both said yes. They both quit <laughs> within three months of me buying the business. So I lost the roaster, yeah. warehouse guy. Um, they both had not taken leave in two and a half years. So I had to pay out 10 oh, weeks each of, of salary. So tens yeah. of thousands of dollars unexpected. Was, it, was that priced in though? Was that priced into well, the Well, it was priced into the in. The, you know, it, I think what happened was you, you get 75% of the entitlements or something like that. So, you, so I didn't yeah, get yeah. all of it. But at the same point, I wasn't planning on them leaving. I trusted that the, what they told me was true, that they wouldn't leave. Sure, sure. Um, which, you know, was probably quite silly. But I wasn't – I didn't have this money sitting there, you know. Gotcha. You I, I thought that was used to, to leave. so quickly. Yeah, right. yeah. I thought that was kind of used yeah. to leave. And um, But then I worked out very quickly that, like, the, the GM lady who was running it, she couldn't leave. She couldn't even leave a desk. Yeah. Um, I'd never seen anything like it. I couldn't believe how, how much she was working for this family. And she was the daughter-in-law. Anyway, all, all that said, these were challenges that happened. So, so, so they left. The original founder of the business still worked there. He left two weeks ago. Same situation. A shitload of leave to pay out. You know, he had 20 years of the business going back. He started Jeez. the business. Um, he was the only one who fixed all the machines. So all of these were, were challenges that, that ultimately, ultimately I think it'll be for the best because I think when people leave companies – I think it's a good thing because you know yeah. turnover, they're leaving for a reason. It, you know, it, it meant they didn't want to be there ultimately, and so in that in that sense, you don't want them there. Um, yeah. And they think it's in their best interest to leave, so therefore that's that is the best interest. Um, yeah. But short term, it creates some challenges. <laughs> so, 
for sure. Yeah, and I but guess yeah. it gives you the opportunity to run the business in the way that you want to, not be held back by the way that things have been done in the past. Or Definitely, the it's a huge blessing because the, you know when I took it over, I kind of thought, yeah, I'll just be able to come in and change a whole bunch of stuff. But <laughs> I've been operating a certain way for a very long time. You've got staff there that are, that are there, they're set in their ways. You know, you can't really change someone's contract that dramatically. You know, the, your, yeah. your options are pretty limited. So when yeah. when they decided to leave, ultimately I was happy about that because it, it meant that I could steer the business in the direction I wanted to. But it creates short-term challenges and a, a lot of – I mean, I'm doing like work now that – I haven't done in a business in years. Like I got, yesterday I got my forklift license. I ran the brewery for eight years without ever touching a forklift. And, yeah. you know, we moved a shitload of beer around, but I always had people to run the forklift. So it was never something I had to do, but I have to do the forklift. I love it. It's cool. But, you know, that's something I have to do. I'm doing all the accounting, bookkeeping, doing all the website stuff, um, all the inventory, setting up all the inventory, managing all the inventory, all, all the rebrand rebranding of everything all the activations um this stuff that is actual work i hadn't really been doing for years because i was running a company you're basically running a company you're just overseeing other people's work yes um, correct yeah so now every day i'm i'm working you know so th- so i can't i can't spend all day writing blog posts and and doing rebranding fun stuff or you know hanging out with influencers if <laughs> you do shit like that because i've actually got work to do which is cool i really enjoy it i love having something to do. I really hated not having something to do. Um, but it just yeah. means it's slower than I would have hoped to do the whole rebrand and, and whatnot. But oh, I've got some good stuff coming and it's, it's going to be fun. Yeah, that's awesome. So how, how much can you tell us how much you how, how do you value the business and how much you paid for it in the end? Yeah, so, so the way I valued it, I mean, first of all, like I mentioned, when, when you buy a business, people, so what happens is, you, you probably know this, this is like your world, but yeah, what happens with family businesses is like they have a P&L, they have a balance sheet, but a lot of stuff goes through the business that, you know, it's a gr- it's, some of this stuff's a gray area. You, you know what I mean? Like I like running things by the book, but most family businesses, there's sort of a gray area where things get put through the business that, you know, aren't 100% business things. And it's al- there's always, it's never going to be perfectly black and white. So when you buy a business, you see the existing P&L, but they kind of rewrite it in a sense and say, well... You know, I come in 10 days a week, I don't get paid, but I'm not really needed. So that line item, or, or this person comes in and gets paid, but they're not really needed. They're just, we're just doing that because they're a family member. We're going to take that out of the P&L. Yeah. You know, we've got mobile phones that are sort of work-related. We'll take that out of the P&L because it's sort of a personal expense. And you sort of get a new P&L that has a profit, an annual profit figure in it, and they use that profit figure to determine the value of the business. Yeah. But you're really trusting them to be honest about the actual cost of running the business. And like the example I gave you before where one person is effectively running the business but doing the job of at least two people, I mean, that's that's the best part of 100 grand right there. So if yeah. the business is doing theoretically 300 grand profit a year but it needs one more person at least, then, you know, that 300 goes down to 200. So you're sort of, you're sort of relying on the rosy picture they paint if there's other people in the market for the business, which there was when I bought it, well, at least I was t- I was told there was, you know, there's a limit to how much you can negotiate. I wanted to buy it and I was prepared to pay what they were asking, which was effectively 3x. In my head, the way I valued it was, well, I'll give you two ways of value. I paid basically a million dollars for this business, right? Yeah. In their head, the way they were valuing it was three times 
what this sort of hypothetical profit would be if you if you do all the clawbacks and work out, you know, how it would run at its absolute leanest, right? Yeah, yeah. In my head, I valued it at basically the value of all the assets plus about 2x profit because I thought the profit okay. realistically probably wasn't 300, was probably it more like 50. Yeah, and yeah. I thought 2x is, is reasonable if you consider all the assets that I'm buying as well because I was buying buying a fleet of coffee machines, a coffee roaster and all this other stuff that would cost me close to half a million dollars if I was to buy it. And I think I over, in hindsight, I think the assets were, were overvalued and I didn't know a lot about valuing coffee machines. But when I looked at the numbers after I started taking over the business, it was kind of like, eh, I don't think this is actually worth quite that much. Sure. But that said, you can't really start a coffee business unless you have coffee machines or exactly. you can get finance for those. And I was very nervous about debt. Um after the Black Ops experience, you know, essentially, essentially, I had director's guarantees for the debt and to the point where if I don't want to have those guarantees anymore, I have to give away all of my shares back and just completely lose everything to do with that business. And yeah, I don't want to be in that situation ever again. It's scary. It's super scary. And personally um, guaranteed debt is scary. Yeah. Yeah. Business, business debt for sure. So I, I didn't. And if you've got directors and, and you know, they're, they're getting into more debt and you don't agree with it, but you're a director, yeah. then yeah. shit can get really scary. Out. And I, I didn't want yeah. any of that with this. I was happy to purchase all of this stuff with my own money and not have debt for all the equipment. So I valued that as well. And I thought it came out at around about the right sort of number. Yeah, cool. um, okay, So effectively, I feel like I bought <clears throat> at a, a market rate, more or less, probably overpaid a little bit. However, I have a sort of belief that I can build a company and ultimately have it worth more than the market rate. And, and that's what I did yes. with WP Curve. And yeah. I think I got very close to doing that with Black Ops. I certainly got, you know, raised money at valuations that was much more than, you know, 3x profit. It was When I was working there, you know, I was felt like I was on track to building something that was worth a lot more than a traditional business valuation. And yeah. that's what I hope to do with this too. So you sort of think, combine all of that, then it's it's a deal that you're happy to do. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important uh, message to, to make because I think in competitive deals. So going back to you know your ad backs, it, it, like we we do a lot of due diligence on, on small small businesses, and it's extremely common. This is probably for the audience listening. Extremely common for people to inflate their their profit or their earnings. We call normalization adjustments, right? right? So I want to make my profit as high as as possible because you apply three to that profit number, and, and there's the value I should expect. Um, right, but then if you me, right? when you're running the business, you have an incentive to keep profit lower but to pay less tax. So it's yes, always that awkward, exactly right. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so you've got, you know, I've got the sister-in-law on the books, uh, but she doesn't work in the business. I do it for tax reasons or right. I'm putting a lot of travel. I've got my cars in the business, which, you know, they're all personal. So, so yeah, you get all these ad backs and, you know, it's really hard actually someone outside looking in, like it's really hard to actually verify whether they're legitimate or not because you just yeah. don't know. You don't, you haven't worked in the business at all. Yeah, you're just an outsider. You're just kind of putting a lot of faith that these are legitimate personal expenses that are not recurring when you take it over. And you don't know yeah. until you're in, right? You don't know until you're six months in that, oh, shit, the GM, she was on an 80K salary, but she's actually working, you know, three jobs. And so mm. to 
she's leaving. I actually need to hire three people to replace her. That's going to cost me 200K in salary, exactly. not 80. Yeah. And so you don't know these things until it happens, which which is always like one of the, the hard parts of buying small businesses particularly because uh, they don't have that governance, which which may happen in large ones. Um, and, and also your point about like buying the equipment. Like I think I think the question that always, you know, the build or buy question always comes up is like, yeah, how much it will cost me to start this from scratch, right? And yeah, you're mm. probably having to fork out half a million dollars just in, in equipment um, and then all the time in trying to you know get contracts out to cafes to, to do that 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 is that is value right like the time invested to do that yourself versus just buying something that's already in existence yeah that, that that's what essentially what you're paying for in the form of like goodwill in for inverted commas right the, the difference between um, you know the, the hard assets that you're buying versus what what you eventually pay so that that's the yeah. goodwill that you acquire that's the advantage and I think where you come in, is like so if you're paying market value as an investor or an operator in your perspective you're thinking well what's my edge like how can i make this better than it was how can i renovate the business so i can make a to make some capital growth or improve the earnings and this is where your edge is right you've done this before in you know you're an internet marketer you've you translated your marketing tactic and playbook into boring businesses you know this is yeah. like a boring brewery now a boring roaster and your edge is like yeah cool there are quick wins there are low hanging fruit here to Build a brand, franchisable brand. You know, maybe increase prices if I haven't in price increase in ten years. Like, hey, there's maybe we can add a dollar to per kilo for the beans. Um, hey, they they've been doing everything by paper. Like, let's just get some automation into the into the systems. And so slowly, it'll take time, but like you know, over two over a couple of years, you'll start to see incremental improvements on your on your bottom line. And and that is value. You are creating genuine enterprise value. Mm. And then the next question is like. You, know, you spoke about exit. Like, I don't need to exit. What if you just start to fr- roll out the franchise playbook into, you know, New South Wales, Melbourne, whatever, as East Coast roast and start to build a, a franchise around that? And that's that's how you actually build value in, in the, these super small businesses. And yeah. uh, doing the same playbook by buying family-owned ones and, you know, rolling out your operating playbook, which you've spent, you know, by then a couple of years developing, um, That that's, that's how you create value uh, for yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and even just like with WP Curve, I had a business that was profitable and comfortable and I made good money and it wasn't that hard. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Black Ops was the opposite. I, I never never made market rate for my uh, position, you know, n- not even really close. I, I, never, I never sold my shares for anything, you know, so I, I really financially didn't do well out of that whole thing ever. Starting something again, you, you kind of think, well, you put everything on the line and it doesn't work out. It's a real, real bad feeling, you know, like to, to just think out of all that work you did for all those years, there was really good work that, you know, everyone noticed, everyone enjoyed, got really good results. You're going to get absolutely nothing for it. And even worse, you know, with things like director's guarantees, it could be worse, way worse than nothing. And then I sort of you, it's, you reflect on previous businesses. You know, I was bored with WP Curve, but it was such a good business. You know, it was so easy, it was profitable. Mm-hmm. I remember like like feeling rich because I was getting paid so much. Like I think I was getting paid. We were paying ourselves a hundred, hundred and thirty grand US or something, which was like a hundred and sixty, hundred and eighty maybe Australian. And then I had my personal brand, the books and everything, where I was earning about a hundred grand. 
So I think there was like wow. one year there where I was earning like 250, 300 grand a year. I was like, oh, this is crazy. I'm rich. Like, and I that's have- 10 years ago as well. Yeah. That's 10 years ago. That, that's that's probably today's dollars more like half a million, 600K, right? Or yeah, it was like I was, I actually like felt rich like for the first time in my life. I was like, this is actually, yeah. I can actually basically just buy whatever I want. And I never did. I, I never really bought anything all that fun. I bought an old car. But yeah, to think that like just having a business where it can be profitable and you can make good money, you can have a good lifestyle, you can do something you love and not necessarily want to exit it, you know, maybe I could just be happy running that for quite a while and just enjoying it, you know, after all the years of experience, uh, experiencing the opposite. But that said, I will always sell a business if you've got the opportunity to, if it's a good, good result, because you're just always conscious that it could go to zero. You know, even the best, mm. most exciting, most awesome business could so easily go to zero. And I've I've now experienced what working for eight years on something and having enormous success with it and getting nothing out of it feels yeah. like. And I don't want to experience that ever again. So if I if I get the yeah. opportunity to sell a business again for a decent amount of money, I'm going to jump on it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, um, I I actually disagree with you on that. I think that if you have a great, I, I think I think coffee is is stable as hell. Like you know, microbreweries, craft brewery. I think with, that was a trend. Like I think craft brewing as a as a category is a fairly new. If you look at like, a fifty year, look back fifty years, you know, yeah. craft brewing is probably a new thing in in our lifetime. Coffee has been here for decades. I don't think coffee is going anywhere. It, coffee consumption will only go up with population. I think you're in a rock solid industry. I think you would be, you know, people may or may, you know, maybe five years down the track, people might want to buy your business. I think you should stick on, hold on to it and franchise it or, you know, build it into something bigger if you enjoy mm-hmm. doing it still, right? Obviously that. But yeah. I'm, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, and because you've built, you're, you're a guy that buys and sells businesses, that you're a serial entrepreneur, you know, you flip the flip stuff. Um, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm a holder, right? If you've got mm. a great, long-term business that you know defensible economics and you think can continue to grow it even like five or ten percent a year and matching inflation like keep it like you know it depends on the multiple and all that stuff you get but you know what what i find happens um is people like well you you sell it you make this money like shit now what do i do god that (laughs) is 100 uh, true you were like 100 (laughs) right about that and i like i experienced that after leaving black ops in the worst possible way like you just you just feel useless you got nothing to do I'm so terrified of that. So I would have to make sure there's something else that I went on with. Um, but yeah. you might be right. Maybe there's just a way to run it, you know, be profitable, enjoyable. There is. Yeah. Well, there is. And that's a holding company. Like I think what you do is you get to a scale and it's not now. You won't maybe maybe there's not enough margin to do it just with the current business. But if you expand it into a few a few different geographies or whatever, you you get the scale where, you know, you grow, you know, the revenue from whether there's a million bucks a year, whatever you're doing now, to like a 10 mil in 10 years. And then suddenly, cool, I've, I've got resources. I've got, I've got EBITDA to like employ GM, maybe professional management. And you yeah. just start to, you become a shareholder as opposed, or the chairman as opposed to the yeah. operator. You're not driving forklifts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just checking the P&Ls every month to make sure things are on track. Yeah. And then you can go, then you've, got, you've opened up all your time to then do the, the other passion project whether you're working on, right? So mm. there are, you can have both, and I think that a lot of entrepreneurs think that to get to, you know, that lifestyle design that they want, they need to sell the business. I completely disagree. There are multiple, numerous examples of people doing it where they just, I've got a cash flow in business. Cool. How do I now scale myself up a pyramid so mm. I'm becoming owner of the business as opposed to the operator, and then yeah. do then do the next thing, and then oh, I'm doing it now. Like you know, this is our playbook, and I think that yeah. people need to explore that as opposed to just selling their thing. Well, that's that's a good point, and I'm I'm excited about that idea too. I, I um I would like that. I'd like to think that I can just 
I don't want to not work. I don't want to not be a business owner. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't want to work for someone else. So it kind of leaves you in a situation where you have to have a business. And if it could be the same one and, and I could stay into it to a point where I wanted to be there for a long period of time, I think that would be awesome. And that, it's kind of every founder's dream. Um, but I do get bored very easily, like like a lot of founders do. So, I, you know, I wonder how realistic that is. But um, let's see. Let's, let's let's do this interview in five years' time and see where. Yeah, at. please do. Uh, this is <laughs> awesome. Well, um, do you? I guess we'll start wrapping up. Do you have anything you want to share or say? Uh, you know, based on the conversation we just had, um, which I've really thoroughly enjoyed. Oh well, I will say it's nice to hear that, that the content exp- inspired you. I think your content is great, and I think you're doing an amazing job. And I actually think there's a lot of. Um, a lot of distraction in the entrepreneurial sort of world and there's a lot of content and I consume a lot of it, but, but you know, a lot of content that is basically entertainment, porn type shit for entrepreneurs, you know, That's like porn. productivity porn, you know. Um, Gary V. The, yeah, the Gary V. Oh, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a fan yeah. of Gary V, but there's just so much of that sort of content out there. I actually wrote, I wrote a blog post on Wednesday night about finance and I, I just sat down had a beer, I, I wrote almost 3,000 words in about 45 minutes because I think this topic is so important for entrepreneurs. And, and like I think about how little I knew, it, it, it actually just struck me that I didn't even really know what a balance sheet was until, until like deep into the Black Ops journey. You know what I mean? Like 10 years after I started out as a business owner because a balance sheet to me with an online business was meaningless. It, was, it wasn't even yeah. a thing. We didn't have any need to have a balance sheet. I didn't re- really know what it was. Yeah. And it was only really at the end of Black Ops when I really started to understand inventory and cost of goods sold and gross margin, like stuff like that, that if you don't understand that stuff and your business starts going badly, you are not going to know how fucked you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Agreed. And it's yeah. so important. And I think, I think your content, I, 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 perhaps that's why it's going so well for you, especially LinkedIn as well, which I think is, I, I fucking hate LinkedIn. I won't lie. I think it's a shithole. But your your stuff seems to go really well because the, the content is needed. It's really useful, and there's not that many people doing it. So I, I would encourage people to consume more of your content because I think you're doing a really good job with that. And just sort of try to stay away a little bit from that other category of entrepreneurial stuff, which we're all guilty of consuming. But um, finance is like the, with all the experience I've had over the last little while, it's the the issue it's the biggest thing it's the it's the biggest thing that could become a problem the biggest thing where you could get an advantage it's the hardest thing to get good advice on man the 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 bad financial advice i've seen dished out by people who are supposed finance experts is just fucking terrifying and if you're a founder that is delegating that to someone else then you should be really, really concerned about that. Yes, hundred percent agree. I think I think people outsource their, you know, the financial world to their tax agent or their suburban accountant who thinks, oh no, you know, they've got they've got they can drive my cash flow. And like, no, no, they're fucking not. They're, yeah, like, they're just literally their their job. You're paying them to fill out your tax return and your bas, and that's literally it. They're not looking over your your, your financials, like, and and that's what that's why we started SBO actually, to because we we need to be this for entrepreneurs because no these. Entrepreneurs don't know what the fuck they're looking at most of the time, so there needs to be a service to do that for them, or at least help them do that. Um, yeah, and I that, found that's that if you're into physical products, it. then it is, man. So few people know how to do proper accounting for physical yeah. products, and and the other the other Agreed. part of it is zero 
which I was a huge fan of Zero when it came out, and it was the perfect thing that I needed at the time, and I hated Myob so much. Yeah. But now I use Myob because Zero sucks at inventory. And yes, 100%. The, yep. If you're running Agreed. a physical products business and you don't have a good system for inventory, which you probably don't if you have Zero, then yeah. you should be really thinking about – you have to – if you're doing it out of the accounting system, you're relying on people, processes, offline spreadsheets. Um, so you're really relying on people's knowledge of how inventory needs to work. And yes. that is pretty terrifying. So if you're a physical yeah. products business, you really need to know a lot about finance and inventory, especially if you're using a system that isn't good at it. Yeah, 100%. So for, for people listening, Zero doesn't do inventory management at all, right? So you're dead. You're reliant on a, like a, an integrated software app like Adir or Sin7 or Unleashed, they're the top three. They just do inventory, accounting, and management, and then they'll just push data through to zero. And MyOB, on the other hand, has a fully integrated manage, like inventory ERP. So I think for, and I saw your post about this on LinkedIn or maybe someone commented, like, yeah, you're like a big fan of MyOB, right? And I actually, <laughs> yeah, for your business, for your business, 100%. I'm like, yes, MyOB is the, the, the if, it, if it's been, as long as it's been around and someone's running it properly, it is the right tool for the business that you're in. Yeah. Um, you know, for SaaS business or services, you're like, ah, probably, probably not. Um, Zero is a lot better, but um, for, for certain businesses, 100%. It, yeah. It, it's, it's so awful in so many ways. I could spend hours and hours telling you how awful MyOB is, but just, just that yeah. one feature of being able to cost in the costings of a product at the time of sale. Yeah. is so critical for a physical products yeah. business. 100%. Um, yeah. It's it's worth all the other shit that comes along with, with having yeah, my Yeah, for so. sure. All the freaking screens that keep popping up every time we generate a report. So <laughs> yeah. let, me, let me say this, right? So my closing comments are what you're doing right now is is hot right now. Like, So there are many people like people listening to this are interested in getting to business ownership through acquisition. So what, and I don't know if you have search funds or ETA, but search funds are a thing where people like, you know, there's investors that back someone to go buy a business. Okay. You're, you're doing that, but you're doing it with your own money, right? So this is hot right now. This is a trend. It's emerging in Australia. It's still very, very early. You're doing it. Um, there's a few, there's a handful of people in Australia doing it who, um, and you're different because you're, you're an entrepreneur and you've done this before, but a few people, um, are not that maybe they've just worked their entire life and looking to get into ownership. So you're in a very hot space. I think my view is that if you continue to build in public, which has always been your strategy, do it with coffee roasters, be consistent. You will 100% be successful. I just know it because, <laughs> you know, Aki was the entrepreneur. You've done this many times. The playbook works. I think you just keep going the path that you're doing in five years. Um, I think that coffee roasters will be a 15 to 20 mil turnover business. I don't know what it does now. What's it doing now? Uh, it's um, doing about two and a half million a year. Okay, two and a half. Okay, so like 10x that. So <laughs> let's just, mil. Just honestly, <laughs> I, I know, honestly, I think if you just do like, you know, try to grind yourself out of the operations, build, get back like into the grind, marketing. Yeah. Yeah, it's grind is grind, right? Small business is, is always grind. Get no, into the, business, into the business, you know, because you grind the Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, pun. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Not intentional. Um, <laughs> but get into that brand building, distribution, you know, expand through, you know, other physical or, um, you know, online, whatever that looks like. Like that, you're, you're on the right path. Like I can just see it and I think you're the guy I text here. So, um, yeah. Well, well, I hope Looking you're right. Because I've, a journey, man. I've, I've, um, taken the biggest hit of my career by a fucking mile in the last couple of years and had the lowest of low points that you, you couldn't even like, I haven't really written about any of this stuff. You know, it, it was so hard and, and I'm risking a lot. I've never risked this much, you know, like I, I only put, I put a hundred thousand dollars into black ops when we started it, yeah. put $0 into WP curve. 
for this business, you know, I had to sell my house. I, I, and this is a dream house and a dream location. It was only ever going to go up in value. I'm putting everything into the, into it financially, into a business I know nothing about. So it really is a very big risk. You know, I don't try not to think about it too much because I, I do just think it is just doing what I do, which is running business. Yeah. But yeah. it is an enormous risk for someone of my age to put everything on the line with no fallback option. Yeah. And yeah, so so I hope you're right. Um, and I'm, I'm, no. I'm not naive enough to think that everything is always going to be perfect because I've experienced a hell of a lot of failure. Yeah. So yeah, I hope no. This right. is this is going back going back full circle to the busy conversation about the you know the Cinderella story. Like this is the story arc that you're in right now. Like it only goes up. You've hit the <laughs> bottom. Like <laughs> this is the hero's journey. You're living it. This is now like okay, found a new thing. You put it all back on the line, and it only goes up from here. I I just I can see it. I you know, and then the end is you not selling the thing you keeping it and then you've got an empire of a, a coffee roasting business and then you're like doing more internet marketing bloggering thing you might build a pay community for, for something else um but like <laughs> this this is where your life looks like in the next five to ten years so looking forward to uh to continuing to follow you thank you dan i really appreciate you coming to the podcast oh uh, thank you i appreciate you too that's nice to say i hope you're right thanks for having me <laughs> <laughs> no, you're very welcome all right see ya Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing plenty more from Dan and East Coast Rose. I could go for a coffee now, actually. Next time, we'll be talking all things search funds with Nikita Gossain. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to Stark Naked Numbers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your podcast app of choice. To learn more about the secrets to uncovering your financials, unlocking your cash, and unleashing your profits, visit starknakednumbers.com and follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Jason Andrew, and this has been the Stark Naked Numbers podcast.